I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I said. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, excalbians, and things to episode 77 of the Muppet Trick Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Jarman, and we're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And what are those, Steve? The Muppets and Star Trek. We've been doing one-to-one reviews of The Muppet Show and Star Trek The Original Series. And tonight we're covering The Muppet Show with special guest star Diane Cannon and Star Trek Original Series episode The Cloud Minders. That's right. And I had never heard of Diane Cannon. I don't know, German, had you? I had not, but she's a spunky little lady. Yeah, she had a long and diverse career as an actor, writer, director, producer, and um, has even done some film editing. She did a ton of TV and film before uh, taking a few years break in the mid 70s. She came back with a vengeance and was nominated for an Oscar for best short film, which she wrote, produced, directed and edited. Hmm. And uh, then she starred in Revenge of the Pink Panther in 78. And got a Oscar nom and a Golden Globe win in that same year for Heaven Can Wait. So this is like right. This was I think this would have been 79 for this season, maybe 80. So this is like when she's like right at the right at the top. I saw a lot of pictures of her with Cary Grant. Were they together or something? They were married. Wow. Yeah. Much, much older than her. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's how it works. What does our audience know her from? In more recent times, she's done. um, She did a reoccurring role on Ally McBeal and Diagnosis Murder. Just to give some time on. So not really recent, 20 years ago, uh, but has only had three on-screen credits since 2010. So she's still around. She's still around, but she's not doing a whole lot. Taking it easy. What's she up to this week on The Muppet Show? Well, uh, on stage, Kermit introduces the episode with special guest, uh, but he's interrupted by Piggy's dog, which really perturbs Kermit. And then uh, Piggy insinuates that Kermit is the dog's father, and he is not pleased with that either. Kermit introduces Jerry and the uh, Actrix, a band of old creepy ladies <laughs> who uh, play Hound Dog, and it is almost as terrifying as Bobby Benson's baby band. Oh, not quite, but almost. <laughs> Next up, uh, Kermit finally introduces Diane Cannon. She appears in a jungle setting, letting out a Tarzan cry and swinging from vines, then performing the song. It's called Civilization. Uh, and she, some pig explorers enter the scene followed by some penguins and she ends up playing bongos at some point. It ends finally (laughs) (laughs) following this. We get missionaries hospital where one of the old rocker ladies from the opening numbers on the table. And this turns into a series of old jokes and confusion about what an octogenarian is. (laughs) Up next, we get Rolf playing man's best friend. It's a soft, sweet song and he's joined by other dogs as they uh, sing about the love of a dog, man's best friend. Uh, We then take a trip to the Swedish chef's kitchen where he's making hot dogs. He pours hot dogs into a pot of boiling water, uh, but then he hears it whisper and it's Piggy. She can't find her dog. Foo-foo. And the chef implies that he's cooked her dog and she is not pleased about this. (laughs) Diane hits the stage one last time for her final number. She enters a pet shop as dogs eye for her attention. The, uh, she performs Big Spender with them as the dogs try to convince her to take them home, and she eventually finds a very special dog. Kermit thanks Diane Cannon. The stage is inundated with dogs. 
And that is what we call the Muppet Show. The backstage plot this week uh, centers around the fact that Piggy put Kermit in charge of her dog. He put Gonzo in charge of the dog. And then Gonzo put Floyd in charge of the dog. And Floyd locked the dog in a cabinet. <laughs> so, <laughs> Not good. Uh, that's pretty much the whole backstage plot this week. Very dog heavy episode. Yeah, it was a dog themed episode. It very much reminded me of uh, like maybe season two. Where mm. There were these subtle themes without it having to be a giant thing. I can see that. Uh, so, German, what did you think of this week's episode with Diane Cannon? Um, I felt it was pretty lackluster. Um, like the, the her musical numbers were uh, like especially the one where she's in the dog shop and it's just uh-huh. it was a small set. She wasn't moving around very much. There wasn't a lot of space for her to move around. So it just kind of seemed stale and stiff and like it was weird, but she wasn't bad. Like she wasn't a bad singer. She was interesting. She wasn't bad with the Muppets, but just wasn't good material that she was working with. There really wasn't like a a fun thing to her numbers. Like the one, the beginning in the jungle was like, yeah, she's in the jungle, but there wasn't really a lot going on. I don't know. It just seemed kind of lackluster, but not bad. Just kind of like, eh. I see this as maybe like, so if she was really at the height of her popularity, like right in this time frame. Mm-hmm. She could have been one of those guests they had very limited time with. That's true. And that's what this feels like. They just had to kind of write these numbers without knowing if she could sing, without knowing what she could do. (laughs) And they were smart to give her musical numbers where she's being backed up by lots and lots of Muppets. That's true. And I I just thought of the Muppet show today, like having Tom Cruise on there. Yeah, Tom Cruise is known for being talented and, I mean, weird in his personal life. But what do you do on the Muppet show with Tom Cruise? probably very busy like you said you don't you don't think he can sing necessarily or do things in that way so what what do you do with him? you know it's like cool right. you got tom cruise what are you gonna do now so yeah her she's like in the height of her powers but she's known for being an actress a director it's not yeah, really so something they buried that, her in muppets they gave her yeah. a few cute things and they made a heavy b plot to make up for the lack of stage presence i don't know why but one something that saved it a little bit for me is something about her is very sexy i don't know what it is but just a very sexy lady. <laughs> That's fair. But otherwise, not that impressive of, a, of an episode. Um, yeah, I agree. It's not a top episode, but it's one of those episodes that feels like they did what they could with that. Yeah. And that was all right. <laughs> Man, they sure made lemonade. You know, like one of those kinds <laughs> they, of episodes. They did that thing. I actually did like Jerry and the Atrix. That name is amazing. Um, and the dog in yeah. that scene looks like he's a dog from Fraggle Rock, but I don't think it is. But it looked a lot like the dog from Fraggle Rock, <laughs> like a pre-version of him or something. I thought those old ladies were so creepy in, <laughs> in just a different way than Bobby. Ba- ba- but I think I feel the same way about them as you do about Bobby Benson's baby band. <laughs> that sounds like it. <laughs> it's just uh, and every time they zoom in on one and their mouth would di- like distort all weird. Like uh, uh. It's when they try to make humans that it goes wrong. That's the problem. Right. Once they're making silly things and monsters, it's fine. But once they're trying to make a dude, you're like, ah. And whatever Scooter is, I don't know what that. He's a gopher. Is he a gopher? That's the joke, is that he started as the gopher on the show, and he's a gopher. I had no idea he was supposed to be a gopher. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's like that's like way back season one lore. Wow. That's like episode four or five lore. Hmm. That's how long we've been doing this show, Jeremy. <laughs> that's crazy. Uh, music this week, Hound Dog by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. It was made famous, of course, by Elvis. But the first recording was in 1954 by Big Mama Thornton. It was her biggest hit and was number one on the R&B charts for seven weeks. Civilization by Bob Hillard and Carl Sigmund. It was introduced in the Broadway musical Angel 
Angel in the Wings. This is a musical review that ended up being a surprise hit and ran for 308 performances. Dang. Man's Best Friend by Walt Kelly. Uh, actually, a cartoonist most known for his hit strip Pogo. He was also an animator for Disney and worked on Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Dumbo. And Big Spender from the musical Sweet Charity. Ah, yeah. The story of a dance hall dancer looking for love. Sexy song. Kai yeah. Coleman and Dorothy Fields. That's why it gets weird in that number because she's like sexy singing to this little they dog. They had to change a lot of the lyrics to like <laughs> to make it very, less problematic. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, are you going to make love to that dog? I'm confused. <laughs> 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 The dog can't say no. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> I don't know. He can talk, so it's all right. That's true. He can say dogs no. can say no. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the subtitle of this episode. Muppet dogs can say no. <laughs> um, all right. So, Jarvin, what happened in this week's episode of Star Trek? The well, series? first, I have a favorite repeteering moment, of course. Oh, crap. That's my repeteering <laughs> moment. <laughs> Well, for me, I was even on the tab. That's the worst part. It was in front of me. (laughs) Um, I was going to say it's going to be Rolf's number, believe it or not, because it's so much coordination in such close quarters. There's actually a lot going on in that small space. And Rolf's got to, you know, really keep the piano playing going. And so there's like so many Muppeteers doing the hands and then someone else doing the face. Like it just had been really difficult just to shove them all together like that. And to a time. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Lots and lots of dog coordination. Mm hmm. How about you? Uh, I'm going to, God damn, do I hate them, but I respect them. Jerry and the actress. <laughs> that was a lot of movement, a lot of performers. From what I could tell, bigger puppets. Yeah. Uh, and a lot going on at once. So for those, all those same reasons you like the Rolf number, I have to give Jerry and the actress because, and they're just creepy as hell. <laughs> but it was done well. <laughs> it was done. I respect it, but I hate it. It's gross. <laughs> So now we have the Star Trek episode of this week is the oh, Cloud yeah. Minders. So we have the Enterprise arriving at Ardana, where they will pick up a shipment of Xenite, a material that is needed to stop a plague on a nearby planet. And they have a limited amount of time to get there and do this. So Kirk and Spock beam down to get it at the mine entrance. But when they're then they're greeted by a group of miners who try to take them hostage. But just then, to save them, High Advisor Plastus arrives with his guards and he drives them off. Apparently, he and the upper class of this planet live in a floating city high above the mines where everything is perfect. There's no violence. They just work on poetry and art all day. It's a place they call Stratos. So they're taken to the floating city to wait while the upper crust people can get the shipment of Xenite from the troglites, which is what they call the working class people in the mines that tried to uh, kidnap them earlier. And apparently a group called Disruptors are trying to rise up against the Sky People. So they are, they are the ones holding back the Xenite until their demands are met. But while Kirk is sleeping later, because apparently in the short amount of time he went from the ship to here, he's already tired enough to go to sleep. <laughs> he's going to sleep. And the leader of Disruptors, Vanna, who's working in the Sky City um, as like a servant, she attacks Kirk to try to take him hostage again. But he overpowers her and he questions her. Apparently, she thinks the Sky People are using the Enterprise to intimidate the Troglites. But Spock and the guards arrive, and they take Vanna to be tortured by a light machine until she tells them where the Xenite is being held. And Kirk sees this and is outright raged by them using torture, because that doesn't happen anymore in the Federation. But their leader, Plasis, tells him to stop judging him and get the hell off his planet and to wait on the Enterprise until they find the shipment. 
So back in the Enterprise, Bones has studied a sample of the raw xenite and found that it emits an odorless gas that basically makes the troglites stupid and emotional while they're around it. So the troglites um, that have been taken away from the gas and are working in the Sky City as servants, they become intelligent enough to start this rebellion and realize the inequality of their situation. So Bones, Kirk, and Spock come up with a gas mask that the troglites can use so they won't be exposed to the gas anymore, and eventually they'll get smarter again. And they tell Prassus about it, but Prassus says, no way, and to stop trying to get involved in their affairs. So Kirk gets pissed by this, and he secretly beams down to where Vanna's being held in a cell. He tells her about the gas mass and the gas and helps her to escape back down to the mines. But once she gets him down in the mines with her fellow troglites, they take him hostage. They don't believe his story about the gas and the mass. He's trying to fool them or get something like that. But Kirk gets the upper hand again, and he uses his phaser to blow up some rocks and trap them in a small chamber in the mines. And he then uh, has the Enterprise beam Prassus to the mine with them. So they can all be exposed to the gas and forced to become stupid <laughs> in front of all of them and prove them that it's real. And it gets to um, this really gets to Kirk and Prassus really quickly and they start brawling with each other because they're dumb and emotional now. But Vanna gets a hold of the Enterprise through the communicator and asks them for help. So they get them out of there. Uh, Prassus then begrudgingly allows for the troglites to wear the mask from now on and they give the Enterprise the Zenite they need. And Vanna says that the struggle of her people for equality will continue into the future. That is the cloud miners. So, what did you think of this episode, Steve? All right. So, some things I liked. Um, I did like the the clear class allegory, uh, and it was very very obvious. But I didn't bug me as much as I thought it would. I mm-hmm. guess is probably the better way to put it. Um, I felt like this episode had way bigger production value than any other episode we have seen this season. Oh, yeah, by far. You're not wrong. Floating thing and entirely new sets and different costumes and very little time on the Enterprise. (laughs) Just felt luxurious for this very cut and dry season. That's true. I didn't think about that. Uh, I think that this features the the sexiest outfit we have seen in all of Star Trek the original series. I didn't even mention that character because she didn't really do anything she in this episode. She had nothing to do with the plot. I agree really. <laughs> she was the voice of doubt within That's the upper true. class. She was almost supposed I, I saw her like Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. She's so conditioned to the way the world is, she can't imagine a different world. Just let the troglites eat cake. Right. That, that's what she felt like. <laughs> I can be. see that. Yeah, Prasis's daughter was on the show and she was wearing a very skippy outfit. <laughs> Uh, pocket sand. I loved that Kirk was trying to ex- escape, and he literally like threw a handful of sand in her face. Oh, I remember that. It was great. Pocket sand. <clears throat> and I like that Spock got some loving too, and that the daughter was interested in Spock and not Kirk. I was hoping they were going to kiss there for a minute, but it never happened. I guess Kirk was in control of himself, or, or Spock was. But yeah, she was like only lusting after Spock and not after Kirk for once. Uh, things I struggled with a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hat that those guards wear from the planet looks like a beret that is melting. <laughs> and it was distracted. I was like, is it going to slide down their head? It looks like it's going to slide down What is that hat doing? <laughs> How is it on top of their head at that angle? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was distracting. What the fuck was the Spock recap with all the floating images? That was not like any other episode ever. That was... So weird. I was like, if this was a mechanic they had used elsewhere, right, to show that how Spock's mind unravels things, that'd be one thing, and may have been interesting as an ongoing thing in the show. 
Uh, but in this one, it says it was like, what is occurring? <laughs> it's like the director of this episode wants, I'm going to be very different with this episode. This is my episode to direct. All right. And you got to go and rewatch it. I think it's in like two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way through the episode. There is a single line where Leonard Nimoy slips into like a British accent for some reason. Really? What does he say? I had to rewind it. Anna watched it with me and confirmed she is nodding right now. <laughs> Uh, it was uh, unequal evolution will not begin until after your ancestors. And then he like slipped back out of it. <laughs> Weird. But yeah, unequal evolution will not. And then he slips into British like five words. I guess he was doing a, another part somewhere at the time. It was so goofy. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I I enjoyed this episode. I think part of it is why say you said it's probably it's- one of my favorites of this season. And like you said, it's on. It's something with a lot of production value. Maybe that's another reason why we're liking it more because it's just like, oh, we're doing something different now—a totally different planet, you know, diff- an actual interesting story that's not on the ship, you know. So, right? Yeah, I think it's probably the top of three right now, not the very top necessarily, but um, there's been a lot of stinkers. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not a very high bar so far. <laughs> but yeah, I did enjoy this one. It was fun. Um, and I should have mentioned her outfit, but, you know, she wasn't important to the episode. <laughs> she kind of wasn't. But, man, that how'd they pull that off? And she had like abs. How'd they get that past sensors and stuff back then? Well, yeah, just don't show her belly button. You can do whatever you want. Because we, we read about a couple, I think, occasions in season two when sensors got upset about less than that. Yeah, I don't that know. That was nuts. <laughs> Go watch it, people. Do yourself Go a favor. Watch it. Check it out. So some trivia for this episode, Um, not very much interesting stuff, surprisingly, but one thing you mentioned about this being expensive looking episode, apparently all the artwork and a lot of the set pieces in the um, Stratos, the Sky City, they had to carefully upholster them and carefully decorate them because they had to return them to the store they bought them from after the episode (laughs) to stay under budget. (laughs) So that was pretty funny. Um, It was somewhat interesting that Jeff Corey was cast as Placis, the leader of the privileged people on Stratos, because for a number of years he would he was blacklisted right before this for allegedly being a communist. Um, so yeah, he was on the blacklist of Hollywood for being a communist for a long time. And David Gerald um, is the guy who conceived the original story on which this episode was based, um, an outline called Castle in the Sky. He was deeply disappointed with the final script. His original concept dealt with a three-way conflict between the elite of the planet Sky City and then two groups of the cave-dwelling miners, one adhering to the tenets of a pacifist like Martin Luther King, um, the other following a more militant Malcolm X-like figure. And Gerald's story ended on a deliberately ambiguous note with the only triumph being that Kirk finally managed to establish a dialogue between the groups. Um, Gerald Laird characterized the final script in which the miners' violent actions are blamed entirely on toxic xenite gas in the mines with this one scathing line, and I apologize for the semi-bad word here, but... Uh, he says, and if we can just get the troglites to wear gas masks, then they'll be happy little darkies and they'll pick all the cotton we need. Oh, my God. That's what he's he was pissed. He was like, basically, you're showing that, like, um, it's not the ending he wanted where they're going to fight for their survival. No, they're just going to give them these gas masks and they'll just do whatever we want them to do now. And so what was the whole point of this episode? So he was really pissed that it didn't right, really right. have a point. Um, so I get it. I get him being upset. But, man, <laughs> even back then, oh, that's why they had writers like this for the show. We're really trying to put these messages out there. But, you know, Star Wars, our Star Trek's never been woke ever. <laughs> never. Not so, once. Yeah. So what's our Trek Muppet connections this time around? Oh, boy, do I got some good ones. 
All right. So in the film version of Sweet Charity, which starred uh, Shirley MacLaine mm-hmm. uh, for the song Big Spender from this episode of The Muppet Show, uh, she plays a woman who falls in love with an actor played by Ricardo Montalban, <laughs> better known as Khan. What a connection. <laughs> Bam. Sweet Charity. Thank God. Big Spender. All right, this was a tough week. Uh, just <laughs> Diane Cannon married Cary Grant, and in the Star Trek Voyager episode Year of Hell, Belana Torres, I don't know if I got the name right, yeah, incorrectly remembers that Clark Gable was in the movie To Catch a Thief, when in fact, it was Cary Grant. Ah. That's right. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's rough. Diane Cannon <laughs> this is a bad week, dude. I tried. That's great, though. I'm Diane surprised. Diane has a reoccurring roles on Ally McBeal, which, thank God, opened up a lot of possibilities. Ally McBeal has cameos uh, and short runs from many Star Trek The Next Generation connected actors, including John Delancey, Famke Jensen, and Jason Marsden. Very nice. <laughs> Bam. All of those on Allie McBeal, just like show. Diane Cannon, this week's host. I watched like almost every episode of Allie McBeal. <laughs> oh, man. But I, I mean, these were the same episode, so I don't know why he has so many problems because they're so similar. Yeah, man. I was freaking out. I thought I was going crazy. Uh, both featured characters depicted as savages, the troglites, and the jungle animals in the song Civilization. Oh. Both have creatures forced to live somewhere with bad air, the troglites in the cave in Star Trek, and Fufu in the drawer in the Muppets. Oh, poor Fufu. <laughs> Both feature characters desperately looking for something. The crew looking for, is it Xenine? Z- Zenite, I think. Zenite, okay. Zenite and Piggy looking for her dog Fufu. <laughs> Both have... Uh, a character refusing to acknowledge their relation to other characters. Stay with me here. The okay, sky people okay. and the troglites, because they're basically the same uh, civilization, but they won't admit that. And then Kermit as Fufu's dada. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm with you. <laughs> Teddy doesn't best. see that connection as a fool. Exactly. Oh, God. What's that doing? Whoa. Transporter malfunction. Transporter malfunction. So here's the part of the show where we transport one character from one episode to the other and vice versa. So what do you got for us, Steve? Well, if it was a Trek this week, I would say transport over Diane Cannon and replace the uh, actress who played Droxine, the leader's daughter. Mm. They both sort of have that same wild-eyed innocence yeah. look, and it would I think would bring similar energy to the role. I don't know if uh, Diane Cannon would fit in that outfit, though, because she's got some... She's very well endowed. We'll put it that way. <laughs> that was a crazy costume, dude. Yep. Um, Muppets of Star Trek, I've had Miss Piggy to come over and replace the Rebels leader woman, Vanna, uh, because I think she'd be a terrifying Rebel leader to mess with. <laughs> nice. I, I want to bring over those goofy mass troglites and replace Jerry and the Atrix <laughs> and playing Hound Dog with like Neanderthalically banging on drums and slamming keys. Oh, man. Animal would have a new friend. Right. <laughs> Uh, Star Trek Muppets, I have one of those save caveman dudes to replace Fufu, because I just want a grown man with a leash making barking noises throughout the episode. As long as he has those, like, eye slit goggles on. Yeah. I think it's fine. And maybe a, a beret that's melting on his head. <laughs> How is it staying on? Is it going to fall off? <laughs> yeah. So that brings us to the end of episode 77 of the Muppet Trek podcast.
Join us next time for The Muppet Show with special guest Victor Borga. And original series episode, The Savage Curtain. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Muppet Trek Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 